0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lou Spinney, author of Beyond the High Blue Air, which is a memoir about her oldest son's traumatic brain injury and eventual death. When Spinney's son Miles was 29 years old, he attempted a snowboard jump and fell on his head. What follows is five years of Miles trapped in a minimally conscious state, sometimes aware and sometimes not. Spinney experiences many milestones in Miles' treatment that foster hope and often end in devastation. The journey Spinney takes with her other three children to care for Miles and eventually argue for a compassionate death is the focus of Beyond the High Blue Air. We began the interview discussing if it was painful to recount the story
1: again and again. No, I have talked about it, obviously, now quite a bit. And no, it's not. I mean, it's it's an interesting discovery there because while my son Miles, obviously, you know, when after his accident and for the next five and a half years, while he was brain damaged and alive... Um, I found it virtually impossible to talk about with anybody unless it was a close friend or family. Um, and because it it was painful, but also because I resented the intrusion, it felt so very private what had happened to him. you know. And I've, I've written about that in the book, actually. I think I touched on the fact that people used to ask questions and, of course, people were interested and... We just didn't want to be reminded unless we were thinking about it ourselves. Um, And it felt very, very private anyway. Then, of course, I started to write the book. I started writing while he was still alive. Um, In fact, I came back from visiting the hospital one day and just went up to my desk and wrote what is included verbatim in the book, the um, waiting room scene in, in Innsbruck Hospital with the fish tank and everything. And it just kind of came out, and I realized then that I, it, I, it felt compelling to record what was happening to him. Um, and then that grew into what the, all the, the many, 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 I mean hundreds of other people that we encountered in this extraordinary state of brain damage that, of course, unless you've experienced it or come across it, one had no idea. Um, and then it became a book, which I didn't intend it to begin with at all. Um, and then here I am sharing it with strangers. So um, I don't find it painful now. Somehow I know I want to share it. I, I it's, It feels important that people might understand brain injury and, and what happens. But also, it's an, it, was, it became a kind of, I realized, retrospectively, it was an elegy or a tribute to Miles. And I find it incredibly moving for any reader who, and people do get in touch with me um, after reading it and have understood and responded and feel as if they know Miles. And I think, gosh, for every just one reader that writes that, it was worth it. That he you know so long as the memories are there he's he will continue to exist.
0: tell me a little bit about miles and then the
1: accident um okay, so he was he was my eldest child, and from the beginning he was very he was very bright and he was very um he was a very powerful, strong character, and he was very funny uh, very down to earth. Um, but he was also an intellectual but he was physical as well so he was he was a lot of and of course as a mother there's always the risk that it sounds like hagiography you know but he really in many ways he really was an exceptional young man and gifted um and but also kind and funny um and he liked taking risks i mean it was part of what excited him so he would go skydiving, or I think I've written about that as well in the book. When we went on holiday to South Africa, he would immediately find out that he could go and dive with sharks because he was really scared of sharks from having seen jaws, and so on. And so you know, snowboarding was something he loved doing, but particularly because there is that the sense of freedom when you snowboard, but also the excitement of, of doing the jumps. Um so when well that that's was part of what I felt that with writing the book, when I realized that it was becoming a book, I had originally begun with the waiting room scene because that was the kind of of co-face of our family's experience. That was the first time we saw him after the accident. But I began to realize that I needed to try and describe him and convey him and the accident in order that people would, know who he was or a little bit of what he was before they encountered him unconscious or in a coma. And so you asked me about the accident. Well I then I had been told a little I wanted to know about it and I, I think some people don't want to know at all the actual details of something like that. But I really did. I felt that it was I hadn't been there and I needed to know what had happened to. Him. And the friends who were with him did um A couple of them told me a bit. They sort of did a a, a sketch of what had happened. So I took the liberty of imagining his accident, and I begin the book by imagining him on that last day and imagining how he felt and then describing the accident. Um, And I make it clear that I am imagining him because obviously that's a a risk one takes with memoir because – you know, it should not, ostensibly it, it should be fact. So I imagined that. Um, and the accident, writing about it was, it strangely wasn't painful. It, it's, I felt that I was with him um, and could actually understand a little of what he felt.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lou Spinney, author of Beyond the High Blue Air. So after the accident, he was in a few hospitals in Austria and England, and you were told basically from the beginning that he wouldn't recover to the point where he was lucid and active. So for the most part, during those five years, he was in a state that I had never heard of before with brain injury. I'd heard of vegetative states, of course, but can you describe the state he was in physically and mentally
1: in your communication with him? Well, that's—I mean, so many people I, we have never heard about it either. I mean, our absolute ignorance before his accident and innocence. Because like most people you've just heard about the vegetative state and even that of course you don't really understand until you see somebody in it But we now know because there have been there was there have been books about it and stories about it and you know legal cases but miles was in a minimally conscious state which means that after when he awoke from his coma after eight weeks and he opened his eyes it was clear he couldn't speak, he couldn't move voluntarily. There were a few movements that he, were very few that he could make with his thumb to indicate pressing a button that he understood, and he pressed it for yes and, and did nothing for no. This was the sort of test that he was given. But um, he also, when you have a severe brain injury, your body is affected as well, which, of course, I didn't know this either. So your muscles begin to atrophy, and... You can suffer from they suffer from spasticity, which means that the the body goes into spasms, the muscles go into spasms, which means that the, he couldn't control his um, his thumbs or his his hands in the end to to answer the questions. But he so clearly through his facial expressions and the some of the movements that he could make, that's like stretching out his arms or his legs, you could tell how he was feeling. It was it it's so difficult to explain that, and that was one of the difficulties in writing about it, because the doctors who got to know him well, and the good doctors who got to know him well, and the carers, all got the hang of him completely. So they absolutely got his character. And they would say things like, you know, oh, Miles doesn't like it when I sing that song or, you know, when I when we're um talking about um, something difficult, and um, you know, I don't know what the politics in the country would become from. He looks really interested, and, and you know, or, and um, so we could tell when he was angry, and when he was depressed, and when he was sad. I mean, once a tear, a couple of times, ran down his cheek, and we told him something. It's a very elusive thing but he was not he was conscious enough he was he was it was like being partially locked in and you might have read the diving bell and the butterfly and that is when locked in syndrome the person is not at all brain damaged intellectually but they their body is is damaged to the extent that's brainstem stem that they't that they can't, that they can't um, indicate or, or speak or indicate how they're feeling. But Miles was partially locked. in. so there were times when he was obviously aware and responding to what we were saying and looked amused or looked angry or looked sad or looked bored. Um, And then there were other times when he was absolutely not accessible. And it was as though he, you know, it was like sort of a fog that came and went and then sometimes it lifted and there was clear blue sky and he was there and he was with you. And then it would descend and then he was gone. And you couldn't access them at all but that is the minimally conscious state and it is something that was only I've given a name i think in 2000 and certainly about two, between 2002 2005 i'm not sure exactly um to american neurologists and because hitherto there was the permanent vegetative state but they then realized that there was this follow-on from it which is minimally conscious state or mcs And that is what Miles was diagnosed as.
0: What about your own experience of being able to read him and figure out what he felt? Was there a lot of second guessing?
1: Of course, there was that too. So of course, that was part of the painful thing is that you could never be 100 percent well sometimes one felt was you know you were quite certain but you at the same time the, for example i would start to read to him and then think does he really want to listen to this does he want to know what you know he was very interested in politics um so i would read from the paper and tell him that you know the new prime minister had just been elected and i think how on earth could he want to know this does he want to know this is this what he wants to hear is it too painful you know so all the time there was that ambivalence of knowing what he wanted, but what was always clear every now and then. So, as I say, it was minimally conscious. It wasn't all the time. Was his, you know, very strong reaction that made it completely clear what he was feeling. I mean, I'm thinking one example. For example, when I came in to find him, I went to visit him, and because he had spasticity and his his muscles were atrophying. People in that situation, they wear, have to wear splints. So he had these splints um, on his arms, which kind of kept them down and kept them straight, because otherwise they kind of would curl in, the muscles were atrophying. And he had splints had been put on, and he was sitting in his chair. And usually they were only left on for a certain amount of time because they were uncomfortable. And as I came into the room, I could see him in the corner. Obviously, his face contorted in pain. I mean, in in really... in Clearly in terrible pain, and his limbs were stretched out, his legs, which weren't in splints, because that was what happened when he had spasticity. If he was in pain, they would stiffen. And so I went over to him and said, oh, "God, what on earth? What happened to you, Miles?" And oh, God, what it is! And had a look at the splint and undid it. And he had a huge red wheel where the splint had been put on too tight, and was cutting into his arm. I mean, it must, and I did, you know, it must have been incredibly painful. And so I was absolutely said, I'm going to go and find whoever put this on. And, you know, Stormtroop found the physiotherapist and spoke to the manager of the of the, of the the care home, who was wonderful, but said to her, can you please come and see this? This is, you know, you've got to see what's happened to Miles. This cannot be allowed to happen to him or anybody else. How long has he been in this situation? And so we went back together with the physio and um, the care home manager. And By then, of course, the pain, the splint was off, so it wasn't hurting him. But he was still looking extremely uncomfortable. And as I was speaking to the manageress and saying this must not happen, you could see him starting to smile. And the manageress, who knew him very well, she said, gosh, Mars, you like it when your mum tells us what to do sometimes or when she's looking after you like this. And it was an extraordinary thing that she could. And he clearly he was amused. It was—it's such a very subtle thing that a person who can't communicate, and he was in a state of altered consciousness, so you don't know really how much he can sense his his body in space, for example, where he, where he knew, but if, if he knew where he was exactly. I mean, his sight had been damaged in the brain injury on the right side of his brain, so his sight was damaged as well. So you know, you one never knew at any point exactly where he was, or what he was seeing, or how he could comprehend anything, and even how it sounded like, whether things were hollow and echoed. You know, it's it's a mysterious, unknowable state, minimally conscious, consciousness. Because we saw him so much and we knew him so well, a lot of the time we were sure that we understood what he was feeling, and he made it very clear both to us, as I say, and to doctors and the carers.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lou Spinney, author of Beyond the High Blue Air. During this whole experience from the initial shock of the accident where you have hope that he'll be okay and it's new for you to, you know, being told... Then, oh, after eight weeks, he'll be out of a coma, and then we'll know more. Or after a year, we'll know more about his state. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the role of hope and how having hope for maybe five years um, affected you, how hope changes and what it does to you and your thoughts about it.
1: Well, it's, that was an extraordinary thing, was that absolute constant seesaw of hope and despair, um, which everybody in that situation experiences. When the accident happens, there's absolute terror and a horror, but obviously hope as well, because you know nothing. So our complete innocence and ignorance. And hope was feasible as well, because until, um, or at any stage, in fact, there was always just the feasible hope that he might get better than he was. And certainly in the beginning, of course, there was the hope that he would wake from his coma and be... We thought at the beginning he might just be perfectly fine. And even if he was a bit, you know, perhaps had to be in a wheelchair or something, you know, that would be fine. We we would look after him and we would be there for him. So every day there was this, literally every day, there was this seesawing of hope. And then something would happen and there would be despair. And living with that, it gradually, gradually, as time went by, the burden of reality, hope began to atrophy, I use that word again, um, into resignation. And um, little tiny, only a few little sort of bursts of hope, as I could describe it, would, would come. You'd think, gosh, there's this new technology that, you know, he can use a machine to um, indicate through sound what he's feeling. And then, you know, they, it didn't work, but there was hope for a moment. It, that was the, actually the incredibly difficult thing to try and retrieve when I was writing the book. Because, of course, by the end, I was writing from the complete end point of hope, which was the loss of miles. Um, but I had to try and retrieve and imagine and describe that hope. We kept the hope going as long as we could. Um, it was necessary for us, and it was necessary for him, we felt. So we had to keep him buoyed up with hope and tell him that he was going to be just fine. and. Well, you know, you couldn't tell him, really. We never wanted to admit what we thought might be the case. And then, you know, I sometimes wonder whether I think maybe being so down to earth and so honest, which he was with himself and other people, that perhaps that might have been a good thing to do and to be completely honest with them. But, you know, it's very, very difficult to tell a person quite how very damaged they are.
0: After time goes on and Miles has been moved to his long-term care facility, your daughter Claudia comes home from visiting him, and she had a profound experience. Essentially, she understood from her communication with Miles that day that he wanted to die. And it sounds like maybe he felt like that for a long time, and this was your path to understand that. But that was a moment where something clicked for all of you, that his life was an unbearable existence. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this realisation and your efforts to try to make that happen.
1: She came back, and what happened when she said, Miles told me today he wanted to die, was that actually what she did was articulate what the rest of us had been feeling for some time. And again, that question of hope that we felt so necessary, it felt so necessary to keep hold of it, we just not really allowed ourselves to articulate the truth, which was that we knew and had known for a while that Miles just did not want to continue. And, and understandably, too, as my son Will said, you know, he said, even if I, if I were in Miles's situation, and I was told that I might, there may be some kind of recovery possible in a year's time, I still wouldn't want to go through that yet. Because of course, he could never be completely cured, it would just be some his body was already so damaged but it was claudia articulated it and we then faced it and that moment was we all sat together and talked and you know we realized that absolutely nothing had changed and that we had all known that he did not want to continue we we then acknowledged it and at at about the same time his the consultant the doctor a rehabilitation consultant at his hospital spoke to Will and said that he'd been wanting to speak to me but he'd found it too difficult to, to broach the subject because he thought it would be too painful but that he wondered if we had considered applying to the courts to have Miles's life ended because in his view, with his experience of treating Miles, he realised Miles did not want to continue and so that of course was a, was a, a really important um, point point. And so following on from that, we had a meeting, and we met and spoke to his doctors, and there were two doctors, and they both said that they both strongly of that view, that Miles had made it clear to them too. And um, so I then went to see a barrister, I made an appointment, and we saw a barrister who specializes in end life decisions. Um, in fact, he was involved in the famous Tony Bland case, which was the first time in 92, 93, that um, a person in a permanent vegetative state was allowed to have his life ended. The problem was Mouse is in a minimally conscious state. And we had the meeting and he said he would take the case on, having heard the story and having heard from all the doctors and from doctors in different hospitals. But I was recommended contacting a doctor who was the um, a rehabilitation doctor who was also what's known as the official solicitor, which means that at the court of um, prote- family court and protection, he represents the person who the family have applied to have their life ended so he represents the the patient and he told me that although he, sh- he probably shouldn't tell me and he was very sympathetic he said that he was involved actively at the time in a case of a woman who was a minimally conscious state and it was the first time it had come before the courts and that it was a long and ongoing and he recommended that we don't do anything until the results of this case because it'd be very expensive and difficult and And that he would keep me informed. He said, ring me back in six months. And so we realized that that we honestly would have to wait. And we just, it was difficult then with Miles because, of course, we would now changed course. But we now tried not to be falsely upbeat with him, but just to continue to look after him and be with him and try and keep him comfortable, etc. And um in fact, he died naturally before this case came to an end. And it did come to an end six months after his death, where the woman was refused um, permission. or well, the family was refused permission to have her life ended, although it was obviously clear from the story that she, too, did not want to continue and had been a very strong character. All her family and doctors and carers felt that she wanted to end, but the judge disagreed. Since then, there has been um, a change gradually, and in fact, the latest was 2016, in December, a policeman who had a motorcycle accident, um, Paul Briggs, his name was, and he was in a minimally conscious state, and the incredibly, extraordinarily humane judge gave permission to his wife to have his life ended. So, it's a question of time, partly, that, you know, Miles, is, he died in 2011, You know, the whole question of assisted dying is is an issue here. A a number of states in the U.S. have been incredibly far-seeing and have allowed it. um, Oregon to start. And it still is a problem here. And it has not been allowed, and I, I definitely support assisted dying when, you know, a person's autonomy to have their life ended as they wish rather than to be kept alive against their wishes.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lou Spinney, author of Beyond the High Blue Air. Do you think about life in terms of our state of consciousness now or in terms of our brain activity? Is that how you define life, um, that if you don't have mental capacity, then it's not really a life?
1: I do feel that, and n- not everybody agrees with me. But I think, and as um, Camus said, without consciousness, life is nothing. And Miles's experience from the moment of his coming out of the coma was an absolutely agonizing expanse of time that had to be endured and there was, you know, the the greatest relief that he could, and the only relief, really, he could get was to, apart from being asleep, was to be as comfortable as possible, and perhaps to be in the company when he was more conscious in other times of people he wanted to be with. But to not be able to communicate or have any autonomy whatsoever is not a life, in my view. And I don't think I would certainly, I mean, I've I've done... um, um, Used to be called a living will. that should such a thing happen to me, I do not want to continue.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: It was a dilemma as to which one I wanted to 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 choose, and it was between W. G. Sebald and Virginia Woolf. And um, I'll find the piece for you. I've got two very short pieces from Ginny Ball. But Sebald is I discovered him shortly before Miles' accident, and as I always do when I find a writer I love, I then read everything I can lay my hands on, plus secondary reading. And um, I went back to him after Miles died because of his stated view, as he puts it, of writing as a moral act of remembrance for the voiceless. And he said that there was this conspiracy of silence um, that existed in Germany after the last war when he was growing up. And and I realized that in a way that was partly, not the main thing, but partly what I was wanting to do for Miles, this conspiracy of silence, or it not a conspiracy, but the, the, the lack of understanding or knowledge of all those people who are in the same situation that he was, and that certainly we had absolutely no idea about but then i've chosen virginia Woolf because i've absolutely always loved her writing ever since i read to the lighthouse and after miles's accident one of the horrible side effects was that i could no longer read or for some months couldn't read at all it just seemed extraneous any pleasure gone and um, fiction especially and uh, the only thing i could occasionally do was dip into something i'd already read and i would dip into virginia Woolf above all and her diaries and get sustenance from them. It felt like it was, they were soothing. And um, so I've got two short examples that spoke to me at the time and that captured really in different ways exactly what I, everything that I was feeling. The first was for Mrs. Dalloway, when Clarissa, by mistake, reminds Peter Walsh that he had wanted to marry her. Of course I did, thought Peter. It almost broke my heart too, he thought, and was overcome with his own grief, which rose like a moon, looked at from a terrace, ghastly beautiful, with light from the sunken day. And that ghastly beautiful moon just said everything to me at the time. But because of the hope and despair element I was describing, there's also this piece, piece from The Waves, Virginia Woolf again. In a world which contains the present moment, said Neville, why discriminate? Nothing should be named, lest by so doing we change it. Let it exist, this bank, this beauty... And I, for one instant, steeped in pleasure. The sun is hot. I see the river. I see trees speckled and burnt in the autumn sunlight. Boats float past, through the red, through the green. Far away a bell tolls, but not for death. There are bells that ring for life. A leaf falls from joy.
0: Do you want to tell me more
1: about that? I just think no, except that she somehow, to me, captures her immediacy of effect and that kind of, I don't know what I would say, kind of recklessness of sensation, the word she used, and the subtle way she captures nuances of feeling through her descriptions and through what she, her honesty as well.
0: Can you read something that you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard to write or just changed a lot from the first draft?
1: I have got a piece that was very difficult to write. It's, what it was, was the point at which my marina my youngest daughter and i went to visit miles in the mortuary after he died and it seemed necessary to see him very necessary to see him then because when he died we were with him but it was with all the paraphernalia of the care home and his room in the hospital and and all the nurses and doctors and it just we needed a moment of of peace with him such strange beauty a body without breath his face freshly shaved So cold when I kiss it, freezer cold. I think, here he is on display again, as he was in Innsbruck that first day all those years ago, a magnificent specimen of young manhood. His presence is palpable, a field of energy that emanates from his stilled body. There is a sense of something distinct and contained, as it had been in the hospital room, though this time there is no conflict. In the first instance, death was defeated, but now it is his choice. He desired this end. What word is there to describe Miles as he is in death? or, above all. or for him, for the grace that resides in his tangible, residual power. or for death, its omnipotence, its unequivocal magnificence. And with this comes a sudden and unexpected sense of deep calm and comfort. We are alive, and then we die, and all of it is magnificent and right. Grief will resume, but for now, standing here in this alien underground room, I am suffused with reverence for the life that Miles was given to live, and lived so intensely. Marina takes my hand as we leave. He loved us too, she says. That is ours to keep.
0: Do you want to tell me more about that?
1: It was just, it was very difficult to write, but um, it was a very important moment seeing him there, and it was a beautiful moment. Where do you write? Um, I write anywhere I am, but mainly in, I've got a room called The Office in my house, which is now strewn with um, grandchildren's crayons and pens and papers and scissors and books. But yeah, I have a computer and I write here.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Well, I get away from writing by just going for a, a really long walk if i if I can, and also by reading actually, just by cutting off and um and just going somewhere and taking a book and reading it and getting away from my own writing,
0: who do you show your work to first
1: to get feedback? My children um it was a collaborative experience because I very much needed their permission as it were to write or be you know everything that I was writing because there is thing um you know, there is that ethical dilemma with memoir of who to include and how to include it and um, whether um, I'm doing justice to the people I include. And so they, I felt, were, um, they would understand exactly. So, yeah, they, they each one of the three read everything I read.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Well, that's a difficult question because this is my first book, and I did get a literary agent and then she she managed to pitch it to me and got a publisher. but the rejection uh, i and I'm braced for the re- rejection for my next book, which I am writing but um, um there were just two things I was thinking of rejection in particular but the publishers when the book was um, was um, you know sent out to them there were two one who replied that it was too sad. You know, I, I worried that perhaps the book was um, was too sad. But in fact, the wonderful thing is that from the feedback I've had from readers, uh, they all seem to have said that they find it uplifting as well. So I hope that it, it isn't. But um, And the other work, she was somebody who, uh, a publisher who said that it she wanted more of me and my story and my first marriage and, and all the difficulties of my life up until then and and that was sort of baffling because i thought well oh, have i should i have put more in but um so it was a different sort of rejection i'd been lucky that this book found a publisher and an agent but as i say i embraced for rejection from the next what is your favorite word that it's kind of not a real word, but it is my favourite word, which is bahasily, which is b h a s i l y, and it's something that uh, my daughters worked imagined and made up when they were very small. And um, what it stands for is an acronym for "be happy and safe." I love you. So it became incredibly important, particularly after and Miles' accident. Now we're always, you know, very much more alert to the, the instant danger that can really shatter your life. So when we say goodbye or we finish a text or we finish a phone call or we're going abroad, something we say, the hassle-y. Be happy and safe. I love you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Lou Spinney, author of Beyond the High Blue Air. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.